You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Welcome to Chthonia, the podcast exploring the world of the Dark Feminine. My name is Breach Burke, and I am your host. Uh, this is actually a beautiful day on which I'm recording this. Um, this is actually the second episode I'm recording today. Uh, the The weather outside is is like it, it's it's actually being recorded in spring, but this this is sort of like the perfect uh, autumn day. And um, I, I, as you might imagine, somebody like myself who's very interested in uh, the underworld and the chthonic and um, sort of death and decay and our our feelings about about that and these sort of uh, these sort of more Gothic themes, uh, as you might imagine, um, autumn is actually a preferred season of mine. And uh, so, you know, today it's very inspirational to have a day where everything, you know, the sky is very, very clear and uh, things are, you know, you know, not too hot out, uh, you know, breezy, uh, beautiful. I'd record this outside, except you will get a, a lot of noise interference. So, uh, so here I am in my house, recording this for you, um, hoping that nothing will come up that will will disrupt us. Now, today's episode is going to be about Lilith, okay? Now, uh, Lilith is another very um, complicated figure, probably the embodiment of just about, um, I don't want to say all of the themes of the dark feminine, but probably most of them. Now, who is she? Okay, well, Lilith um, is a a figure who comes from, we we know of Lilith from the Hebrew sources, okay? And when I say Hebrew sources, uh, there's only one mention of Lilith uh, in the Bible, but certainly from the uh, Talmudic sources and some other what they call apocryphal texts. Apocryphal texts are generally um, texts that are related to what we think of as um, biblical works or uh, in Judaism as the Torah. Uh, you know, these are works that were not included in the what we think of as the canon. Um, you know, what, what was chosen for the Bible, for instance, out of all of the, the writings and works from that same time period. Uh, you know, we have these apocryphal works. Um, and, and again, you know, that are, some, you know, that, that perhaps are a varying um, reliability, but at the very least would give us some of the additional folklore surrounding uh, some of the mythological stories of these particular goddesses um, or daemons or other, other figures of these time. Now, the word Lilith comes from the Semitic root, uh, which we spell as L-Y-L, and it's the derivative for the Hebrew Lael uh, and the Arabic Lael, both of which mean night. Uh, the Talmudic and Yiddish use of Lilith um, is probably incognate with the Hebrew. Now, um, there's there's a lot of different stories about Lilith. As we'll see, this could I, I hope this doesn't turn into a, too long of an episode, but there's a lot of material on Lilith. There's a lot um, in the original sources to talk about. And basically what we can say about her, that from what we can tell, is she's often associated with the first wife of Adam uh, in the Bible. In Genesis 1, um, there, you know, as we know, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 actually sort of represent two different creation stories. Um, I, I've been told there are as many as five creation stories uh, in the Old Testament, depending on how you want to look at them. I'm not going to be able to name all five right now. I could probably name three or four. Um, but they are, but so there's, there's this idea when, when, um, Yahweh says in Genesis one, uh, male and female, he created them. Uh, there's this idea of, you know, sort of an equal, uh, creation. And then there's a, and then in the next, the, the, that 
second version, sort of your Genesis 2, Genesis 3, you have this idea of um, where he takes Adam's rib, you know, puts him to sleep, takes his rib, and then makes Eve. So this is, they're, they're actually viewed as two separate stories. And so there's often a reference in uh, the Jewish literature to a first Eve. Um, now, interestingly, uh, Lilith's crime, her main crime is that she sees herself as equal to Adam. She does not, you know, when they wish to have sex, Adam wishes to be on top of her, and she doesn't understand why. And uh, Adam, of course, more or less indicates that that is her proper position beneath him because he is, as he says, superior to her. And, of course, she's not not having any of this. So she, um, as they say, speaks the holy name of God, uh, the ineffable name, and she disappears. And there's a lot of different versions about her and what she is and what she becomes. Uh, this, uh, you know, um, and, and of course she is, she's not, she's considered to be arrogant. She is considered to be blasphemous. Uh, she's considered to be a mother of demons and a destroyer of children. So it's, it's very interesting how Lilith has picked up this, um, you know, these attributes, uh, based on the fact that she refuses to be obedient. If you remember, we talk about the, um, Western monotheistic view of femininity, uh, the feminine ideal is, of course, chaste, obedient, and submissive to their male uh, counterpart. And um, Lilith certainly does not fall into this category. Okay, so um, so what sort what kind of stories do we have? Well, there's um, you know there's 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 quite a lot of references uh, to Lilith. Um, I think I will get into the Greco-Roman sources in a little bit, um, but. Uh, just, just looking at a roundup, a compilation of, of um, writings on Lilith, um, there's evidence in later Jewish materials. Uh, little information has survived relating to Sumerian, Akkadian, Assyrian, and Babylonian views of actually what was considered to be a class of demons, the uh, Lilithu, okay, which are, um, you know, which in some cases actually it's also been translated as hungry ghosts. There's a concept of hungry ghosts certainly in um, the Far East, in, in Japan in particular, um, this would be very similar to that. It, it comes back to the whole idea of the restless dead. Uh, I'm actually going to do a whole episode on the restless dead, and uh, particularly in um, Greco-Roman thinking. Uh, the, and these are these are very liminal figures. They're neither dead nor living. They're kind of between the underworld and uh, and the earth and, and being alive. So there is there's sort of a connection here. Now again, there's scholars who will actually dispute. Um, you know, linguistically, whether or not the Lilithu and uh, Lilith are actually the same, okay? Uh, they're, they, they, may or, they, they may or may not be, there, there's probably a relationship between the two. Um, you know, some, some people believe that the, these, these hungry ghosts were sort of subsumed into the, the Jewish figure of Lilith. Um, you know, you know given, given sort of the variety of attributes that she gains in folklore. Um, now, where she's mentioned in the Bible is in Isaiah 34, 14, very uh, famous passage where um, it says, the satyr shall cry to his fellow. And then there is a reference to um, the Lilith, um, to the night hag. Now, um, interestingly, uh, Lilith is translated, it's a singular, it's not Lilith, it's, Lil, it's Lilith, which, so it's, it's a singular, it's not a plural. And it's translated as either night creature, night monster, night hag, or screech owl. Okay, that's those are the uh, the interpretations in the Hebrew language text. In the um, Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, 
uh, the, the, the word that is used instead of Lilith is Lamia. And Lamia is kind of a monstrous creature who is associated with um, stealing children. And uh, we'll talk a bit about her um, again in another episode. Actually, I'm going to have an entire episode on the night hag and the succubus and the whole phenomenon of what we think of as sleep paralysis um, and the related uh, nightmares that come along with it. Because again, these have to do with sort of these uh, dark uh, folkloric feminine figures. And Lilith is one of them. Okay. Um, there are many um, amulets and magical objects that are meant to um, thwart the influence of Lilith, particularly in terms of stealing children or, or you know, protecting infants from death. Um, now, it's interesting, um, just looking at some of the, the translations here, um, <clears throat> the Septuagint, um, which is the Greek version, probably one of the earlier Greek versions of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, um, it translates the reference to Lilith and the word for and the word for jackals or wild beasts, which is sometimes translated as satyrs um, within that verse 3414, as anokontoros, uh, assuming them to referring to the same creatures and omitting wild cats and wild beasts of the deserts. So instead of um, the wild cats or desert beasts meeting with the jackals, island beasts, the goats or satyr crying to his fellow, and the lilith or screech owl who rests there, it is the goat or satyr translated as daimonia, or what we think of now as demon. It, again, back in, that is not the original meaning of the term uh, daemon. The term, term daemon has to do with an intermediary spirit between the divine and the human. You know, immor the immortal gods did not directly um, communicate with or in intervene with humans. They generally sent some kind of an intermediary, and so the daemon would be associated with that. Uh, so the goat or satyr is translated as daimonia, and the jackals and island beasts, uh, anocentors, uh, meeting with each other and crying one to the other. Okay, so um, so we have this idea of Lilith as something animalistic, or related to something um, animalistic or wild, having to do with something, and when you think of satyrs and when you think of jackals and these kinds of wild beasts, um, you know, we're generally thinking of something that's elemental in a very earthy sense, okay? This has a lot to do with these spirits or the rights of the earth um, and the elements, uh, you know, earth in particular. Uh, so, um, now, with regard, uh, so looking at Lilith uh, in particular, uh, the major sources in Jew Jewish tradition that regard her in chronological order, uh, first we see the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, she's mentioned in Songs for a Sage, and that's from about the year 40 to 10 BCE, so we're really talking about um, end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. So that's actually quite late uh, compared to other Jewish writings and certainly compared to uh, ancient Babylonian, Sumerian, and Akkadian uh, writings. Um, now, she's mentioned in the Gemara of the Talmud, which was from about the year 500 uh, CE, which is the Common Era, the era we're in now. Uh, around the year 800, she's mentioned in the alphabet of Ben Sirach, um, which is a, a another apocryphal work, a um, bit of a controversial one. We'll talk about that. Uh, the year 900, uh, she's mentioned in the Midrash Abkir. And then in a couple of Kabbalistic texts from 1260 and 1280, respectively, one is called the Treatise on the Left Emanation, and the other is, that, in fact, the Zohar. Okay, we have these mentions of Lilith, and uh, it's interesting uh, what is said about her. Um, so let's start with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, there's one um, reference to her uh, in the um, 4Q, 510 to 511, fragment 1. 
and I, the instructor, proclaim his glorious splendor so as to frighten and terrify all the spirits of the destroying angels, spirits of the bastards, demons, Lilith, howlers, and desert dwellers, and those which fall upon men without warning to lead them astray from a spirit of understanding and to make their heart and, uh, and their something uh, desolate during the present dominion of wickedness and predetermined time of humiliations for the sons of light, sons of light referring often to the um, angelic beings, uh, by the guilt of the ages for the, of those smitten by iniquity, not for eternal destruction, but for an era of humiliation for transgression. Okay. And um, so, you know, this is, um, this is actually interpreted as sort of a, a text of exorcism, okay, of, of certain... Um, you know, it's a, it's an exorcism hymn is the way that this is uh, in, interpreted. Um, now, in in another um, passage, there's a, ref, a, ref, a ref, uh, can't speak a reference to the seductress. Okay, four Q one eighty four. Um, although this also uh, there's uh, Joseph Baumgarten um, who interprets this as saying um, it's safe to say that this is based on a strange the strange woman of Proverbs 2, 5, 7, and 9. And he quotes the, the, the piece from Proverbs 5 in particular, her house sinks down to death and her course leads to the shades. All who go to her cannot return and again find the paths of life. Okay, now that's an interesting um, connection there because because the um, this, 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 this uh, woman of Proverbs um, is sometimes translated as being a uh, a strange woman. Now, when we mean that, you know, sometimes in, in some versions that's translated as loose and in others as foreign, okay? And it's worth noting that foreignness is a is an attribute of what we'll call the other with a capital O. Um, foreignness, and, and it becomes an attribute of the demonic. Um, certain deities, one of their attributes is their lack of familiarity. Uh, the god Dionysus starts with the, you know, his, one of his chief attributes or qualities is that his, his foreignness. He's, he's not considered sort of to be an original Greek deity. Um, and his coming, you know, he, you know, he, it's like he has to prove himself as a god. But, you know, he is, he's considered with, viewed with suspicion because of his foreignness. Uh, interesting, you know, it, 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 it's, it's quite fascinating that, to think about that. And to think about um, what that says about our attitude towards the foreign and how we connect that um, with death. Because certainly what is foreign to us, it's unfamiliar. It, it takes us out of our routine. It threatens what is uh, normal for us. You know, there's a chance that we might have to change the way we think or change the way we act or change the way we live. And certain changes, if they're substantial enough, uh, are akin to um, death. That means there's a loss of an old way of doing things and a new way that comes up. So, um, and again, this is not a negative, it doesn't have to be a negative, but that association, it's interesting to contemplate that association with the foreign. It's worth thinking about when we think about our attitude, especially today, um, not only in the United States, but you see it in Britain, you see it in um, certain other countries where there becomes this idea of, uh, where nationalism becomes a, a very big thing, where people start saying, um, you know, this is my country, you know, when we talk about making America great again, uh, this idea that uh, we're, go and we're going to build a wall against uh, Mexicans, or we're going to do, you know, it it's, it's, it's rather ridiculous, the way that we treat, um, you know, refugee children and, and so forth. Um, it's agreed that, you know, not every country, you know, it, it, that, you know, when you have an influx of refugees that, you know, for certain countries that this can create an issue. 
But one has to be careful and recognize how much of this is, you know, goes back to our uh, fear of the foreign, fear of what's different. And uh, some of that comes into our um, associations with purity and with what's what's, you know, with what's light and what's pure and what's good. And of course, all of these dark skinned people are, you know, um, you know, there's this idea that they are somehow, um, you know, there's something foreign or other in this kind of um, way that is, you know, that, that you know, we, we view them with suspicion. We, we hold them at arm's length and say, well, no, you, we, we're not going to let you in here, as though you are barring yourself from some kind of an evil. Um, it's worth noting how people unconsciously and reactively, you know, not necessarily intentionally, but unconsciously and reactively, and it may be some cases consciously, will associate what is, what is dark, what is foreign, what is other, with what is also what is, what is evil. And this is why I continually stress that what is dark and what may not um, follow our conventional rules and civilized order may not be evil. Okay, um, so this is this is you know you need to you know need to kind of re, you know evaluate your your sort of um, knee jerk associations with those particular ideas. Okay, that's a little bit of a digression. Um, so okay, so you have this idea of the foreign woman. Um, it's not entirely sure whether or not uh, this refers to Lilith. There's some doubt that that might refer to Lilith. Um, however, it's pretty clear, though, we'll see in other references that this idea of Lilith as the seductress who will lead someone astray um, is not out of the realm of what people think about her. Okay, so um, in the Talmud, in the Jumura, there's three separate uh, tractates um, of the Mishnah. It's about three, I'm sorry, it's about three separate tractates of the Mishnah. Uh, Rabbi Judah, citing Samuel, ruled, if an, if an abortion had the likeness of Lilith, the mother is unclean by reason of the birth, for it is a child, but it has wings. Now that's interesting. The idea, if you have an aborted child and it has wings, then obviously the mother was engaging in some kind of unclean activities. Because now here, here we talk about this idea of Lilith as a, as a deity with wings. She's also portrayed as having bird's feet, which if we go back to the Bernie relief that we talked about with Arishkagal and Inanna Ishtar, uh, that, you know, that, that's one reason that she, that's sometimes seen as being a depiction of Lilith. But again, the bird's feet is, is another kind of, um, underworld association, but Lilith is associated with that. You'll see in later demonology too, that, um, you, you have this idea of the beautiful woman who appears, but then if you actually look at her feet, she's got chicken's feet or crow's feet, or she's got something else. So this is a, a folkloric idea that kind of carries on, uh, and may, may have, at least in this particular tradition, have started with Lilith. Um, now, in the that's, that was in the um, Babylonian Talmud on the tractate Nidda 24b. In the tractate um, Aruvin 100b, hopefully I'm saying that right, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, um, expounding upon the curses of womanhood, uh, in, a bereta, in a bereta it was taught that she, you know, she grows long hair like Lilith, sits when making water like a beast, and serves as a bolster for her husband. Okay, so again, there's this idea that women with very long hair are like Lilith in some fashion. Um, which, you know, again, there's, there's kind of a, um, a negative implication there. Certainly Orthodox women are expected to cover their hair, um, you know, perhaps because of its temptuous or seductive uh, aspect, so that may be the connection there. For Jira, he should take an arrow of Lilith and place it point upwards and pour water on it and drink it. Alternatively, he can take water, which a dog has drunk at night, but he must take care that it has not been exposed. And this is in the Babylonian Talmud Tractate Gittin 69b. Um, and the comment here is that the arrow of Lilith is probably a scrap of a meteorite. And so this is sort of a medicinal um, 
uh, passage. You know, and, and, it's in, and, and again, the association of Lilith with uh, meteorite. Uh, I, again, I'm thinking back to uh, Kibbele and her association with the Black Stone or the Kaaba. Mm -hmm. um, the, the association of um, certain goddesses um, or certain um, spiritual figures with an unhewn stone or a rock. Uh, this is this is also not um, uncommon, and, and it's very interesting because that because that that kind of ties Lilith to the to the Earth Mothers, um, you know, to the you know to the to these these sort of goddesses of the Earth who are both uh, creators and devourers. Okay. Um, now here's an interesting passage. Um, this is from the uh, Babylonian Talmud, uh, Tractate Bava Batra, seventy three A B. Uh, the rabbi said, I saw how Horman, the son of Lilith, was running on the parapet of the wall of Mahuza, and a rider, galloping below on horseback, could not overtake him. Once they saddled for him two mules, which stood on two bridges of the Rognag. He jumped from one to the other, backward and forward, holding his hands, uh, two cups of wine, pulling alternately from one to the other, and not a drop fell to the ground. Now, now um, the comment here is that Horman is probably a um, mistranscription of Hormuz, which is referred to as uh, Ormuzd, which is the, or Ahura Mazda, who is the, um, the good deity, the deity of light in Zoroastrianism. Okay. And so, uh, so Ahura Mazda or Ormuzd in this case becomes the, the son of a, of a demon. Uh, and, you consider the theory. One of the theories is that um, Judaism, as it as it evolved from its more into its more monotheistic format, and in the idea of Yahweh as a as a god of salvation, uh, as and as one who would save from death. Aside from any Orphic influence on that idea, because Orphism is certainly uh, one of the places where we start to see um, in the mystery culture where we start to see this idea of salvation from death, or at least from the worst aspects of death. Um, when we start getting into ideas of judgment, it's believed that a lot of this comes from Zoroastrianism, and, and one theory, at least, is that it's because of the, the influence of Cyrus the Great, which the book of, that book of Ezra refers to him as an anointed one, um, because he allows the, um, when, when, the Babylon, when he um, overtakes uh, the kingdom of Judah, uh, he allows the Jews to keep their religion and their temples and doesn't insist that they um, uh, swear allegiance to the Babylonian gods. And for this, they call him an anointed one, like a messiah. And some have speculated that it's um, Cyrus, Cyrus is, um, was a Zoroastrian and that this is what influenced uh, the Jews towards their, you know, um, later ideas about, um, uh, you know, battles between good and evil and supporting a good God um, and the punishment for those who didn't and those being saved who, who did. Um, so it is interesting here that, to see in a in a Jewish source, the idea that um, Ormazd, this this um, you know this good god of Zoroastrianism, uh, being the child of a night demon, uh, what the what the Jews consider to be a night demon, I'm I'm personally skeptical of the Zoroastrian connection. Uh, everything I've read about um, Cyrus the Great suggests to me that he was a worshiper of Marduk, the Babylonian deity Marduk. I don't I, I think Darius, um, his his successor, was a Zoroastrian. I don't, I don't see much evidence that he was. I mean, it, some things have been cited, but it, it, the evidence is more, well, some of the rulers before and after him were associated with Zoroastrianism. That doesn't 
I can't, I don't see anything in the literature that suggests that he was. Um, so it's, you know, so that's, that's, again, that's another, that's a digression, that's another discussion, but, in, but, but we have this uh, Talmudic interpretation of Lilith as being the mother of Ormazd or Horamazda, so that's, uh, that's rather uh, odd. Um, Rabbi uh, Hanina said, one may not sleep in a house alone, in a lonely house, and whoever sleeps in a house alone is seized by Lilith, and that's the uh, tractate uh, Sabbath uh, 151b. Okay, uh, now, now, it's mentioned that uh, this, this particular belief about, you know, a man sleeping alone in a house, um, having to worry about Lilith, there is a belief that uh, having, you know, that you have a man who has nocturnal emissions, who, um, you, know, you know, comes in his sleep, um, gives birth to demons because Lilith uh, will, you know, um, sort of mate with him at that time and take the sperm and, and, and use that to beget uh, demons. Uh, it, that also is is related to uh, Lamashtu, the uh, the Babylonian deity, who's uh, a vampiric deity. Really, uh, it's her. You know, she's a full goddess whose intention is to eat human flesh and drink blood, and she's also considered to be a child stealer. Something else that we're going to see is associated with Lilith as well. But um, you know, and and it was the same idea that a man who had nocturnal emissions would could you know that this goddess would come and. Uh, and, and use that that uh, wasted sperm to to bear demon children. So uh, rather interesting there. Um, so you know, there's a in the tractate um, Eruvin 18b. There's this tradition of Adam who who sees that he has uh, um, that he's begotten all the you know from his own nocturnal emissions that he's created all these demons and and, the, and has brought death into the world. He said, when he saw that through him death was ordained as a punishment, he spent 130 years in fasting, severed connection with his wife for 130 years, and wore clothes of a fig on his body for another 130 years. Okay, so it's, um, and and again, here here we have, again, we have this view of death as being something unnatural and a punishment, okay? Um, and, and as I've said, one's view of death is, you know, the view of death in a culture sort of dictates the way it almost deals with everything else, and I'm not the first person to say that, for sure. Um, if you view death as something that is not a natural part of life, um, you're, you know, you're, you're going to tend to view it and everything associated with it as an evil. So you see that here. Um, there's, uh, the Midrash Rabbah collection contains two references to Lilith. The first one is present in Genesis Rabbah 22.7 and 18.4. According to Rabbi uh, Hia, God proceeded to create a second Eve for Adam after Lilith had to return to dust. However, to be exact, the said passages do not employ the Hebrew word Lilith itself and instead speak of the first Eve, uh, Hiva Ha Rishona, uh, analogically to the phrase Adam Ha Rishon, that is, the first Adam. Uh, Although in the medieval Hebrew literature and folklore, especially that reflected on protective amulets of various kinds, Hiva HaRishona was identified with Lilith. One should remain careful in transposing this equation to the late antiquity. Yeah, because the idea of Lilith, we're not really sure um, whether this first Eve made, really was referring to her in earlier times. Uh, second mention of Lilith, this time explicit, is in the Numbers Rabbah, 1625. The Midrash develops the story of Moses' plea after God expresses anger at the bad report of the spies. Moses responds to a threat by God that he will destroy the Israelite people. Moses pleads before God that God should not be like Lilith who kills her own children. Okay. 
Um, now, okay, that's so that's in um, so we look like in the Talmud and 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 the commentaries. Now, there's another that other work is the Alphabet of Ben Sirach. Now, this is a bit of a controversial piece because we're not really sure whether yeah you know, this is accepted by later uh, German mystics, uh, Jewish mystics, as being uh, an authentic text. Uh, however, some people feel it is meant to be satirical towards Judaism and its beliefs. So, it's, and, and some Jews are actually quite offended by its contents. Um, so this is between the 8th and 10th centuries. Uh, and, and the mention here, I'll, I'll read, the, read from this. In the text, an amulet is inscribed with the names of three angels, Sanoi, Sansanoi, and Samangaloth, and placed under the neck of newborn boys in order to protect them from the lilin under their, until their circumcision. The amulets used against Lilith that were thought to derive from the tradition are, in fact, dated as being much older. Okay, so then we talk about the idea of Eve um, as, you know, uh, the, the first Eve. And um, so, okay, so here's the story as it's told from the alphabet Ben Sarak. After God created Adam, who was alone, he said it is not good for man to be alone. He then created a woman for Adam from the earth as he had created Adam himself and called her Lilith. Adam and Lilith immediately began to fight. She said, I will not lie below. And he said, I will not lie beneath you, but only on top, for you are fit only to be in the bottom position, while I am to be the superior one. Lilith responded, We are equal to each other inasmuch as we were both created from the earth. But they would not listen to one another. When Lilith saw this, she pronounced the ineffable name and flew away into the air. Adam stood in prayer before his creator. Sovereign of the universe, he said, the woman you gave me has run away. At once the Holy One, blessed be he, sent these three angels, Sanoi, Sansanoi, and Samangaloth, to bring her back. Said the Holy One to Adam, if she agrees to come back, what is made is good. If not, she must permit 100 of her children to die every day. The angels left God and pursued Lilith, whom they overtook in the midst of the sea, the mighty waters wherein the Egyptians were destined to drown. They told her God's word, but she did not wish to return. The angel said, we shall drown you in the sea. Leave me, she said. I was created only to cause sickness to infants. If the infant is male, I have dominion over him for eight days after his birth in a female for 20 days. When the angels heard Lilith's words, they insisted she go back. But she swore to them by the name of the living and eternal God. By the time, whenever I see you or your names on the or your forms in an amulet, I will have no power over that infant. She also agreed to have 100 of her children die every day. Accordingly, every day 100 demons perish, and for the same reason we write angels' names on the amulets of young children. When Lilith sees their names, she remembers her oath and the child recovers. Um, now again, one of the reasons that this is found offensive is because it's very clear that uh, the Holy One, the Most High of God, um, of God, of Yahweh, can't control Lilith. And the best that his angelic messengers can do is to make a, to, to negotiate with her. He can't. He can't stop her. He, you know. You you would you would think this is kind of the case of you know an all powerful god, who can't control this uh, this woman that he's created. So some people find this to be uh, terribly offensive. Um, now the the idea of uh, Lilith as this first wife of Adam. This is the first place where it's really mentioned. Okay. Um, it became first only became widely known with the 17th century lexicon Talmudicum of German scholar Johannes Buxdorf. Uh, in this folk tradition that arose in the early Middle Ages, Lilith, a dominant female demon, became identified with Asmodeus, king of demons, as his queen. Asmodeus was already well known by this time because of the legends about him in the Talmud. Thus, the merging of Lilith and Asmodeus was inevitable. The second myth of Lilith grew to include legends about another world, and by some accounts, this other world existed side by side with this one. Uh, Yenvelt is Yiddish for this, for this described other world. 
In this case, Asmaduth and Lilith were believed to procreate demonic offspring endlessly and spread chaos at every turn. Many disasters were blamed on both of them, causing wine to turn to vinegar, men to be impotent, women unable to give birth, and it was Lilith who was blamed for the loss of infant life. The presence of Lilith and her cohorts was considered very real at the time. Okay. Um, and what's interesting here, okay, there, and this is noted also by um, the author of this piece that I'm reading. This is sort of a, a compilation, encyclopedic compilation. Um, Lilith is being seen as both an incarnation of lust, uh, somebody who tempts men and leads them astray, and also as one who kills children, and um, who, you know, and, and also there, there's an association of her uh, with witchcraft and with magic, which is where we sort of start to see these associations with women who are, are wise to the ways of the earth or nature or have too much knowledge as somehow being associated with a woman who is a temptress to evil ways or a, a woman who kills children. Um, and again, these are interesting archetypes to consider, especially in terms of our knee-jerk actions and thoughts about things like abortion uh, and birth control and so forth in this culture. Uh, something certainly to consider. Um, Okay, um, now the uh, now moving on to uh, Kabbalistic literature, uh, the left, um, the book of the left emanation. Uh, now, in the, in this particular thirteenth um, century work, uh, she tends to be uh, well. She you know she tends to be associated with you know she's born out of the spirit realm. I'm just trying to find my note here. Uh, mystical writings of two brothers, Jacob and Isaac Hakoin, which predate the Zohar by a few decades, states that Samael and Lilith, okay, Samael's in another uh, version of the story. Supposedly they, when Eve is created for Adam uh, instead, and the two of them wander around the garden in innocence, it's Lilith and Samael who plot to um, undo their innocence. Um, that Samael and Lilith are in the shape of an androgynous being, double-faced, born out of the emanation of the throne of glory, and corresponding in the spiritual realm to Adam and Eve, who are likewise born uh, as hermaphrodite. The two twin androgynous couples resembled each other, and both were like the image of the above. That is, they reproduced in a visible form in an androgynous deity. Okay, so, in, so they are considered to be a higher emanation of Adam and Eve. Um... So there's, and then there's another um, version of there in the Kabbalistic circles, establishes Lilith as the first of Samael's four wives, Lilith, Nama, Aisheth, and Agrat, Bat, uh, Mala. Each of them are mothers of demons and have their own hosts and unclean spirits of no number. The marriage of Archangel Samael and Lilith was arranged by Blind Dragon, who is the counterpart of the dragon in the sea, that, that dragon that is in the sea. Blind Dragon acts as an intermediary between Lilith and Samael. Um, now that brings me back to another note that I have. Um, uh, this note, this, this, this comes probably from another, um, related to the Talmudic passages. Uh, Lilith was fashioned of the same substance as Adam shortly before. A third alternative version states that God originally created Adam and Lilith in a manner that the female creature was contained in the male. Lilith's soul was lodged in the depths of the great abyss. Uh, in another version, it mentions her creation as being before Adam's on the fifth day because the living creatures whose swarms God filled the waters included none other than Lilith. Now, uh, this connection to the abyss and to the waters is significant 
because the uh, Hebrew word for abyss is tehom, and that is related to the Babylonian uh, word for Tiamat. Okay, Tiamat is the mother goddess, the serpent mother goddess of uh, ancient Babylon. She's slain by the, the hero Marduk uh, when she sends her army of terrors uh, against the gods who have tried to have, who have slain her, her lover. Um, and, uh, you know, she, you know, she, she, she starts out as being very protective, but then when her, uh, her lover is slain, then she goes and she turns on her children. So Marduk rises up to, um, to slay her and her army. And it's said that when Tiamat, who is a great serpent, is cut into pieces, that her body becomes the firmament of the earth. There are several mythologies in which the serpent plays a role in the creation of the earth. Now, in the biblical version, the serpent, the serpent is also a creator of life in the sense that um, the serpent tells Adam and Eve, hey, you know, you need to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in order to know, you know, in, in, you know, in order to live. And he's, and the, the serpent is correct. Life, the Garden of Eden is not a condition of life. It's a condition that is, that predates life. It's kind of a unified condition. And that one, one, when one lives in the field of life, one lives in the field of time and space. And to do that, you must know difference. You must see things as different. And before that, Adam and Eve don't know that they're different. They don't know difference. They're not separated from the field of God. This is not a state of sin. This is just how life is. And when you treat it as a sin and nature is corrupt, that kind of... Um, tends to skew your idea of the whole world. It's not really surprising that we live in a culture that um, is very hard to convince that taking care of the earth is something important because we tend to devalue nature or we assume that some um, great uh, progenitor out in the sky is going to take care of it. So this is, um, you know, there, you know, so Lilith in this case becomes identified with the serpent and in fact in a later um, uh, right, a, a Kabbalistic writing. She's referred to as the torturous uh, serpent. There's, uh, and they refer to the, um, the based on the identification of the Leviathan, the slant serpent, and Leviathan, the torturous serpent. A reinterpretation of an old Talmudic myth where God castrated the male Leviathan and slew the female Leviathan in order to prevent them from mating and destroying the earth. Now, Leviathan, of course, is a great beast of the waters, where Behemoth was a great beast of the land. And you, you do see references to this in the book of Revelation as well, where the Messiah says they will feast on um, the bodies of uh, Behemoth and, and Leviathan. And in this is a particular version where Samael and Lilith are partners, and supposedly um, God castrates Samael so that he and Lilith cannot um, bear monsters that will um, uh, bear children. And so therefore, when she could no longer um, mate with him, she went after to find men who had nocturnal emissions. So there you go, guys. Um, if you're having lustful thoughts in your sleep, you're giving birth to demons. Uh, nice job. Um, <clears throat> okay. So uh, there's another Kabbalistic text that states that God has cooled the female Leviathan, meaning he's made Lilith infertile, and she is a mere fornication. Um, so she is not about, um, about having children. Which, um, I mean, the whole idea that sex is merely for procreating is ridiculous anyway. But, uh, but this is, uh, but, you know, we, so we see this in the, um, this personified in, uh, in Lilith to some degree. Um, now, uh, now, now here we go in, this is, again, back to the treaties on the left emanation. Uh, there's another pat. There's a passage that charges Lilith as being the tempting serpent of Eve. Okay, so now we see her in a serpent role again, and the serpent, the woman of harlotry, incited and seduced Eve through the husks of light, which in itself is holiness. 
And the serpent seduced the holy Eve, and enough said for him who understand enough said for him who understands. And all this ruination came about because Adam, the first man, coupled with Eve while she was in her menstrual impurity. This is the filth and impure seed of the serpent who mounted Eve before Adam mounted her. So yeah, there, there's another tradition that menstruation and and the blood and, and all of that that comes with it is associated with Lilith and that this disgusted Adam. Okay, so. Uh, there's there's so much that could be said about that. I could I could probably the the whole concept of of, of purity and, and sexuality is, is something probably again something I should work into another whole episode because it's um you know it, it it's fascinating here. Um, so here he says, behold, it is here before you because of the sins of Adam, the first man. All things mentioned came into being. For evil Lilith, when she saw the greatness of his corruption, became strong in her husks and came to Adam against his will, and became hot from him and bore many demons and spirits and Lilin. Okay, um, <clears throat> okay. So references in the Zohar, which is another Kabbalistic text. Um, so again, we have a reference to um, nocturnal emissions. In fact, she supposedly is the one who causes men to have these exciting dreams and, uh, and to emit themselves. Um, so uh, in, in the Zohar, Lilith is said to have succeeded in begetting offspring from Adam during their short-lived sexual experience. Lilith leaves Adam in Eden as she is not a suitable helpmate for him. She returns later to force herself on him. However, before doing so, she attaches herself to Cain and bears him numerous spirits and demons. Cain, of course, being the first murderer. Um, and according to Gershom Sholem, um, Rabbi Moses uh, de Leon, who's supposed to be the author of the Zohar, was aware of the folk tradition of Lilith. Uh, he was aware of another story that may be conflicting. Uh, two female spirits, Lilith and Nama, found Adam desired his beauty, which like that was like that of the sun disk, and lay with him. The issue of these unions were demons and spirits that caused the plagues of humankind. So here we see the woman uh, as temptress, who is responsible for all of the ills uh, of the world. Um, now, Lilith, in, in relationship to Kabbalah, in terms of the Tree of Life and its Sephirot, uh, she's listed as one of the klipot, okay, which is, is sort of one of the uh, unbalanced. I don't know if you want to call them the reversals of the sephirot, but there's there are there are the ten sephirot of the tree of life, and then there are sort of their um, shadowy versions, if you will. Uh, she is uh, corresponds to the sephirot Malkut in the tree of life, which is the tenth sephirot. Um, the demon Lilith, the evil woman, is described as a beautiful woman who transforms into a blue butterfly-like demon and is associated with the power of seduction. Um, now, it, now, what, uh, now, what's not mentioned here is that if Lilith is in fact associated with the Klepotic force uh, attached to Malkut, then uh, she's probably also considered to be sort of a shadow side of the Shekinah which is the feminine, the presence of God in the world. And of course, Shekinah is a feminine word. Now, again, he, you know, rabbis and, and Jewish scholars will tell you that Shekinah is not a female deity. Nonetheless, the, the term for the, you know, the presence in the holy, um, the tabernacle and the holy, uh, holy of holies is considered to be a, you know, has, has a feminine name. Okay. Regardless of whether the Jews regarded that as a feminine deity or not, certainly has a feminine name. And it seems that Lilith is sort of the um, clepotic uh, manifestation of that. Um, and speaking of Lilith as a shadow figure, uh, she's also, in some senses, the shadow of Eve, if you want to look at Eve in, uh, 
her, herself and Eve as sort of being the first two people. I write a little bit about this in my own book, Death and the Maiden, uh, which will be coming out later this year. You can see details about that on Chthonia.net. Uh, and I'm just going to read you uh, an excerpt here um, on, you know, from, from my own work. Uh, if Eve was weak and defiant, okay, because remember now she's considered to be responsible for bringing um, sin and corruption and death into the world, she pales in comparison to the later folkloric figure of Lilith. In Jewish folklore, Lilith becomes a symbol of the demonic female who refuses to submit to her husband. Her name is first used in Isaiah 34:14 in connection with night demons and monsters, with Lilith translated as night hag. She also appears in folklore as Adam's first wife. It is believed that Lilith was probably a carryover from Mesopotamian or Sumerian demonology, but we don't know anything about these original demonic figures or how they were viewed. As I have said uh, later, is that they're probably these, these sort of uh, class of uh, hungry ghosts that um, later became uh, consolidated in the figure of Lilith. Um, she may well be a demonized goddess. A later story claims that Lilith left Adam, coupled with the archangel Samael, another name used for Satan. In the Talmud story of Lilith, Samael is driven from heaven, as the devil was in the Book uh, of Adam and Eve. Book of Adam and Eve, by the way, is another apocryphal text that I refer to um, that uh, deals with, um, you know, very you know, very specifically um, pins the blame of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the fall of humanity, if you want to call it that, on Eve. And uh, this is one in, which, in that point the devil is driven out. Now, I, I repeat the, the Talmudic story, which I'm not going to repeat again since I've already told it to you. Um, in, their, the, in the condensed retelling that I have just given, we observe a number of points of interest. Lilith and Adam are made out of the same substance, dust. Eve is taken out of Adam, so she is viewed as part of him. Lilith is really his equal. It is in the sex act that Lilith wishes to assert her dominance. We see here how sexual dominance for a woman is viewed as something wicked. She recites the forbidden name of God, something that would associate her with magic and witchcraft. Magicians are the ones who learn and speak forbidden names. And she is associated with Samael, the devil who will later cause Adam and Eve's fall from innocence. Uh, now, I go into Jungian theory very uh, much in this piece. Uh, so Jung states that Satan is Yahweh's shadow. If so, then Lilith is Eve's shadow. Eve comes across as weak and easily deceived, which is the reason for her disobedience. Lilith is strong and in charge of herself. If the idealized woman is passive and obedient, then this is the persona she must display. And this is the persona she must display. Then Lilith represents the less developed side of the feminine. Uh, the one that, by virtue of the fact, by the way, that it's unconscious, means it's stronger um, in, the way, in, its, um, in its effects. She is the Eve of the underworld and knows secret things which would associate her with the Chthonic. Merch Eliada speaks of the Chthonian great mother, who shows herself preeminently as the goddess of death and the mistress of the dead. That is, she displays threatening and aggressive aspects. He also refers to the vagina dentata, which is the mouth of the Mother Earth. In initiatory myths and sagas, the hero's passage through a giantess's belly and his emergence through her mouth are equivalent to a new birth, but the passage is infinitely dangerous. Lilith's connection to the devil and the fall of humans, as well as her creation from dust, uh, make her an Earth Mother. Okay, um, so in that sense, um, again, I, I might take that a little bit qualified here. We, if we think back to what we've said about Inanna and Ishtar and Arishkagal, these are hardly mother figures. Nonetheless, there's an obvious connection to the earth, and there's become a devaluing of the earth. If we think about Lilith as, um, as Eve as being drawn from the rib of Adam, that's the human creation, which is viewed as something superior. If she comes from the earth, the earth is something of, of lesser value. Okay, so... 
Um, but nonetheless, it does make her his equal because he also is something that comes out of the earth. So, um, you know, so you kind of have all these um, these associations and these uh, things that are sort of tied together here. Um, so we have Lilith as the shadow of Eve. We have Lilith as the sort of the shadowy side, the clepotic side of the Shekinah in um, in Malkuth. Uh, and then we also have um, you know Dion Fortune, um, the uh, 19th century occultist, early 20th century. Uh, probably more 20th century, right? Um, for some reason I'm confusing her with somebody else. Dion Fortune uh, refers to uh, Lilith as the shadow of the Virgin Mary. And this kind of makes sense if you think about the kind of the, uh, the vir what we call the virgin whore dichotomy, okay? The, the idea of uh, the chaste, obedient woman versus the one who is sexually aggressive and perhaps sexually in charge of herself. And you have to realize that this, um, this sort of archetypal um, axis or image still dominates in our culture. It still dominates our, our thinking. We don't necessarily think about it consciously, but unconsciously, that is the script that we assume. We assume that if a woman is not one way, she must be the other way, you know, and, and we associate one with what is good and one with what is evil. And I, I think this drives a lot of the sort of knee-jerk feeling about, about women and, and the fact that women, we need to make laws to make women submit because women can't be in charge of their own sexuality. Uh, I plan to do another episode on women in um, horror movies, particularly after the advent of birth control. Because this is because there's definitely a, a theme there of the idea of a woman in charge of her own sexuality will produce something demonic or will become something demonic herself. So, um, you know, it this is our, you know, and again, there's there's no middle ground here. As we've pointed out, these these ancient goddesses that are associated with sex and war in particular, desire has a certain place. Desire does not have a place in a religion that demands celibacy and chastity and purity. There's an assumption that sex is only meant for procreation. Um, of course, men can get away with a little more in terms of the pleasure in, in, in this particular system, which is very patriarchal. But, um, but women, um, it's their job to submit. Okay, and uh, this is, and again, this is, this is a, it, you have to recognize the concept for what it is. And it's not, um, it's not, as far as I'm concerned, it's not anything ordained by anybody. It's, it's, it's a way in which we have taken um, an obsolete ancient worldview and, and, you know, continue to try to sort of uh, plaster that onto a modern uh, form. Um, okay, so I have just a, uh, a few more notes here. Um, so we can sort of summarize Lilith as being disobedient. Uh, as sexually aggressive, as having sort of a vampiric quality. In some versions, she's like Lamash too. She's sort of like a blood drinker. Uh, someone who's a child stealer. Child stealing is a very common attribute of the dark feminine because just as, you know, fertility in, in, in a marital situation is considered to be important, uh, barrenness, well, especially if you think of Judaism where it's so important to bear, particularly a male child, um, the barrenness of the woman is, is considered to be an evil. So she's associated with that or with the sickness of children, that she delivers nightmares or night terrors. Uh, she's associated with unclean animals, okay? Her association with these wild beasts in um, Isaiah 34, 14 and these sort of elemental things makes her impure and unclean. Um, we have this um, her as the shadow figure of these certain other uh, feminine archetypes. And also um, in the treaties on the left emanation, sort of her and uh, Samael and Lilith is a higher version of Adam and Eve, which is a rather, um, you know, which one of these is not like the others. But but that's rather telling as well. Um, in some Kabbalistic versions, uh, Lilith is associated with Hesed or the uh, Sephirot of Mercy. 
Um, and some, and again, if you're talking about the initial emanation from the throne, then you're talking about Bina and Chokhmah, uh, which are the two uh, top two emanations, uh, which might then associate her with Bina, uh, the, the mother figure, uh, who has, um, you know, and there's, and there's a lot to be said about that. That, again, probably requires its own episode. Um, but we see Lilith appear later on um, as a succubus figure, um, uh, you know, in, in these kind of nightmare things. And again, I'll do a sort of a separate episode talking about these um, these women of the night, these night hags or these night terrors. Uh, she's generally considered to be a sinister or sexualized character. Uh, sometimes she ends up standing uh, for the equality of women or the um, or the powerful woman. Okay, you know, the, obviously in the '90s we had the Lilith Fair. There was the idea of women who, uh, you know were sort of um, creative and, and standing in their own right, um, as opposed to, um, you know, being, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, they're, you know, having to, you know, being lesser than their male counterparts or um, being a backup to a male counterpart or so forth. Um, I'm also going to take a mention of um, Black Moon Lilith, which is an astrological um, uh, aspect, we'll call it. Um, Black Moon uh, Lilith, uh, so it was originally, it was kind of an early 20th century idea. Um, there, was an, there was an idea postulated of a second moon that orbited the Earth, too dark to be seen. And uh, this, of course, has been discredited. And modern astrology does use the name uh, Lilith in, in uh, astrological charts given to a point on the horoscope that represents the direction of the moon's apogee. Okay? And it's not really related to this hypothetical second moon. Uh, when considered as a point, uh, this Lilith is sometimes defined as the second focus of the ellipse uh, described by the moon's orbit. The Earth is the first focus, and the apogee lies in the same direction. It takes eight years and ten months to complete its circuit around uh, the zodiac. And I'll have an image of this for the uh, YouTube version of this to see what that, that, um, what that looks like. But Dark Moon Lilith um, is used by uh, some astrologers um, in, in, their, in their work, and will... And depending on where it falls, you know, we, we see this kind of Lilith influence uh, in the chart. And as you might imagine, it is connected to these ideas. It's connected to unconventional sexuality. And it is connected to, um, connected to a lot of the problems of women. One of the things that goes along with the dark feminine, in addition to have this idea of the barren woman, the temptress, the child stealer, you have the woman who, who feels that she has been rejected by society or rejected by social norms. Okay, and this, um, there's definitely an aspect of that. There's kind of a melancholy aspect to the dark feminine as well that uh, I find does get sort of associated with Lilith, um, at least astrologically. I mean, you wouldn't think of that with a strong woman. With a strong woman, you'd think they're like, I don't care. But there's certainly a rage or a, um, an anger uh, at the rejection or at the, uh, the inability to, to properly connect. Okay, and, so, and thus, you know, destruction is wrought because there is no union and there's no creation. So, um, so all, all of these things are things to think about. As you can see, there's, there's quite a bit um, on Lilith that we've, we've discussed here. I mentioned her connection to uh, the Lamia, uh, which I will talk about when I, when I talk about these kind of um, child-stealing um, folkloric figures. And... Um, Looking my looking through my notes to see if I have anything else. Um, there's like I said, there's still um, she's frequently referenced in literature, probably in video games, in um, you know, and and you know there are, there are sort of 
more modern folkloric tales or, or fictional works that will make use of Lilith. And like a lot of feminine figures, I think we need to, um, you know, probably, you know, more modern reinterpretations of Lilith put her in a different light. You know, we need to get away from the idea that uh, it comes, it, a lot of it just comes down from the fact that a woman in charge of her own sexuality is bad. And there's nothing bad about a woman in charge of her own sexuality. You know, let, let's, let's get to why this is so fearsome. Why is it fearful? Why do you, um, you know, you know, why is this a threat to men? Um, I always felt that a man who could be very comfortable, um, not only with himself as a man, but with, um, you know, these the sort of aspects of femininity and with the feminine, uh, is, you know, and, and, and is um, sort of malleable in that, in that way, is a man who is, is probably a greater man because he's, he's not afraid of the feminine. There, people who you know need to need to forcibly put down women or put them in their place are, are men who are you know you, you don't do that unless you're afraid, or unless you are somehow weak and disenfranchised. You know, Lilith sort of represents that feminine force that makes men weak, and you know the really what it comes down to is you know it, it's like martial arts. You know, you have to learn you learn when to yield. You know, you, this is not only you standing up and aggressively confronting another force or or you know trying to be superior to it. Um, you know, Lilith is seen as arrogant, but I really feel like the arrogance a lot of times, um, that, that, the that's not necessarily the source of the arrogance. That particular, um, reaction is, is sort of a, um, is a defensive measure against, some, you know, what, what one feels is an injustice. So, uh, you know, all of these things are things to take away and think about when we think about, um, you know, Lilith, who is a real, uh, embodiment here of what we call a dark feminine figure in many of its attributes as, uh, both as a, as a temptress, as a whore, as a child stealer, as a destroyer of life, but also as a, um, uh, I, had, I had another word in my mind. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we have, we have this, um, you know, a dark figure who, you know, and who also can represent a, a woman who is, who is strong and, and, and who has uh, experienced uh, injustice in some way. Um, you know, because uh, they don't they don't want to fit in with the with the normal social role. And, you know, and, and again, you know, the, you know, these are look at these repeated patterns. It's, it's, it's really time to let go of these. Um, they're they're not they're certainly not helping us. They are certainly plunging uh, our world currently um, throughout the world in a direction that um, it, it's not going to lead. It's going to lead to the destruction of the earth and everything on it uh, if we're not if we're not willing to yield at some point. Uh, I intend to develop that sort of feel, um, that uh, theme of yielding to the um, to these sort of feminine forces instead of uh, aggressively or arrogantly acting as though we're superior to them or that they they need to be controlled in some way uh, in in uh, subsequent episodes. That's going to be it for today. Um, again, just a reminder: if you're not at Cthonia.net already, please go and visit and look at all of my projects. See what you think. I would like to get uh, your feedback. I have a Facebook page. I have an Instagram page. Um, Facebook and uh, Instagram are under Cthonia Podcast. Um, it's two words on Facebook. It's one word on Instagram and one word on Twitter as well. Uh, look for Cthonia Podcast. Is it two words or is it one? Anyway, look up those two words. You'll find me. And then um, also um, on YouTube, the channel is known as Cthonia. 
and I will have video versions of all of these posted there. Uh, if you are interested in contributing to my projects and to my work, um, which I would greatly appreciate, and I give a big thank you to those who are patrons already, please check out uh, patreon.com slash Thanks again for listening, and until next time.